In this episode, we're going to take a trip to Sunday school where the correct answer to every question is always Jesus. But don't get too excited because this episode will not include coloring pages or goldfish crackers. Hey everyone, my name is Ray Burns and I want to equip Christians to think biblically about every area of life so that they can keep growing in spiritual maturity. And we are finally at the end of our series on Christianity and psychology. I will apologize if my sound sounds a little bit different than it has for the past six episodes. I'm actually out in my living room tonight instead of in my setup in my bedroom. Um, It's about six hours before this episode is supposed to release, and the week just was one of those weeks. But here we are, and uh, even if the audio is not great, I trust that the Uh, biblical theology and call to holiness and loving our God will compensate for that. Uh, Now, before we go on, as a reminder, as always, I am not offering medical advice, uh, but to summarize just the last few episodes that have led us to where we are now, uh, we've looked at kind of what human beings are in terms of our physical and spiritual selves, how we are naturally lovers of sin and haters of God, how despite our salvation, we still fight with our sin nature versus our new nature, and all that fun stuff that we all know what it's about. Uh, We've also discussed how to interpret our problems through that lens, starting from a much different place than secular psychology starts with, and therefore coming up with very different interpretations of those issues. And then last week, for those of you who listened to it, we did a personal case study where I looked at why I personally received specific mental health diagnoses, and then we reinterpreted that from a biblical worldview to understand why even though psychologists could look at the same data as I could from a Christian worldview, our conclusions for why those things were happening had very different foundations and therefore very different interpretations. And in this episode, we will see why when we go at it that way, we're also going to have very different solutions than what psychology will offer. Now, this one's not going to be about me, of course, but overall, the solutions that I found are going to be the same for any solution that you're going to find in the fact that it all starts with our sinful hearts and therefore what we do because of that and how it is that we're going to treat that. Now, obviously throughout this series, especially the last few episodes, I've been basically hinting at what this episode is going to talk about because while I've tried to stay very structured to the theme, uh, ultimately I don't want to talk about things without pointing people to Christ. And so even though I've hinted at it, this episode is going to really show us why we have so much hope in our Savior for whatever problems, mental health issues, disorders, whatever it is that we label it as, why Jesus Christ isn't just a good solution or the best solution, but he is really and truly the only solution to see a genuine heart change at the roots of our sin and what is causing our sin to manifest in anxiety, depression, anger, things like that. And that's because, ultimately, if our thoughts and behaviors start at our heart, then all we can look for is a solution that addresses the heart. Now, the very first step in finding this solution 
is ultimately salvation. Not to say that salvation saves us from all our problems, but really and truly, if we think about it, our sinful hearts cannot grow without Christ. We can seem like good people. We can have good behavior and good actions, but they're still coming from a very sinful and selfish heart that is set against God. And that, for everybody, is our greatest problem above anything else, above our anger, our addictions. Our position before a good and holy God is our our first and foremost priority. So what we're going to talk about in this episode honestly cannot be understood or achieved without a person first having repented of their sin and turned to Jesus Christ alone for salvation, for forgiveness of their sins, for a good standing before God, and for our only hope of eternal life. Now, the reality is that when people go to churches or pastors or biblical counseling sessions and someone says, you know, are you genuinely a Christian? How do you know? And a lot of times, you know, I've heard stories, people will walk away frustrated because they went there for help and all they did was just tell them about Jesus and give them the gospel. And they didn't even talk about their real issues. But ultimately, they do. They do talk about your real issues with you in that way if you are not saved. Because without that, all we can do is love sin. And so the best that we can hope for is not genuine heart change, but behavior modification, which is really all psychology is about. It's about training us as natural animalistic creatures to behave better and in ways that are more appropriate to society. And so consider what Romans 5.10 says when Paul writes, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall, we shall be saved by his life. So at the end of the day, Christ can't become our freedom from our sinful hearts that are creating sinful behaviors if he hasn't first become our freedom from the ultimate penalty of sin in the first place. And so that's where we have to start. We can interpret people's sin, even if they are not a Christian, but we cannot offer them a solution if they have not first received the ultimate solution of salvation. But assuming that we are there, once we are Christians and are looking at our problems, biblically speaking, then what we have to realize is that Christ is enough for us for more than just salvation. He doesn't just save us from the penalty of sin, but also our obligation to keep on sinning. He saves us from our reliance on sinful things and idols and ultimately boiling down to our pride and our self-love. And he replaces those things. He doesn't just improve them or get rid of them, but he replaces them with a love for him. And from there, everything else in our lives is going to radically transform because it really has no choice but to do that. And it's very important that we approach Christ in that way and look at our our problems and what our solution needs to be in that way. Because if we just go into it just trying to fix certain behaviors without addressing that heart root issue that we've talked about, then ultimately what we're going to do is we're going to stamp out one behavior, but it'll just pop up elsewhere. Now, maybe it'll pop up even worse Maybe it'll pop up better and in a way that we feel that we can tolerate more in our lives. 
But again, if that is our approach, then that is actually showing a poor mindset for our problems because we're just looking for satisfaction now. We're looking for comfort in our situations and in our temporary circumstances much more than we're looking at the eternal soul issues going on deep in our hearts. And so we have to realize that Christ isn't just our motivational coach to draw us to better behavior and feeling better about ourselves. He's not a means of just freedom from our guilt so that we can either keep sinning and not feel so bad about it or stop feeling bad. Or in other words, to stop doing bad things so that we stop feeling guilty. And, you know, which puts the focus on us and how we feel. We just want to stop feeling bad. And so we will take whatever solution, including Jesus, in order to stop feeling bad. And ultimately, what we want to make sure we avoid is that we don't want to treat Jesus as a means to an end. In other words, he is just a tool to get us to something much bigger. Instead, Jesus Christ is our end goal in this discussion because he is God. We have to trust his power to overcome not just our sinful behaviors, but our sinful desires that lead to these sinful actions and thoughts that are coming. Remember that root and fruit discussion we've had. We don't want to just deal with the fruits that are growing on the tree. We want to kill that root that is causing them to grow in the first place. And we need to trust that Jesus Christ alone is who's going to do that. Uh, with that, consider Romans 6, verses 17 and 18. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. And so as a follower of Christ, that is what we need to realize we are, and then that is what we want to live out in our lives. We want to realize that we used to be slaves to sin. We had no choice but to sin, to have sinful behaviors, to have sinful desires that led to every problem that we had. I mean, first and foremost, that's what made us enemies of God in the first place. But having been set free from sin, we are set free because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross and his death, burial, and resurrection. Now we are slaves of righteousness. So just as we were controlled by sin, we can now be controlled by righteousness. And we have to trust that that is going to come only through Jesus Christ. And, and this is further clarified in John 15, 5, which says, I'm the vine and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So this really boils down to dependence. We aren't just better people because of Christ, but we are better people through Christ. It is our identity in him that allows us to do anything that pleases and glorifies God. Jesus doesn't just kind of prop us back up and dust off our pants and say, all right, go get him, slugger. It is through him, through the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, that we not only have peace with our Heavenly Father, but also that we can live lives that are not just drenched in sin, but instead we can be those slaves of righteousness. We can abide in Christ and live holy lives that are focused on God. But it is only through Christ that we can do that. But how does he do that? Do we just kind of pray real hard? Do we just sit and say, Jesus, I'm going to rest in you and then just trust that we're going to have this big emotional change? Well, no, obviously not. Because 
God is too good and loving to just kind of leave us hanging like that. He's not just going to give us Christ and then hope that we kind of blindly flail our way about and hope that we find how Jesus is our solution. Instead, we need to turn to God's word. Because think about it, what is it that told us how to have faith in Jesus Christ in the first place for salvation? It wasn't our emotions, it was God's word or a a pastor or a friend or someone who was controlled by a biblical worldview that was rooted in the Bible. But ultimately, our understanding of salvation from sin comes from the Bible. And if we trust it for our understanding of salvation, we need to trust it for our understanding of holy living and how through Jesus Christ and becoming a new creature in him, we can live these lives where we are not dominated by our sin, but instead we can see that sin root issue and surrender it to Jesus Christ. Now, if you don't believe me that the Bible is kind of important in this thing, remember that 2 Timothy 3, 16-17 says that all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. And what does this do? What does God's word do for us in our lives? It equips us, it says, so that the man of God may be adequate and equipped for every good work. So God's word is not silent on what psychology diagnoses. It may not say, here's how you handle depression, here's how you handle anxiety or PTSD or ADD or, or not ADD, OCD, excuse me, obsessive compulsive disorder. But ultimately, God's word is not silence, because while it may not address these words or these terms specifically, the behaviors, the thoughts behind them, the heart root issue, God's word is very loud and clear about. And that is part of what we're going to discuss in this episode is how, through Jesus Christ, we can see victory over some sin issues in our lives. Now, obviously, I'm not going to get into everything about it because I guarantee you this episode is going to be long enough without me trying to hit every single base. But I just want to show how not only does the Bible help us uh, diagnose and interpret our problems, but it also offers us the solution to them in a way that a lot of us may not be prepared for or even be expecting because we are going to be expecting a behavior modification. Oh, well, if you're sinning this way, then go not sin in this way. And God's word's not really going to give us that, and for very good reason. And ultimately, if we do want freedom from our sinful behaviors and especially our sinful root desires, then we need to trust in God's solutions. And with that, not try to trust or meld our solutions with a worldview that ultimately has no room for God. So before we jump into some of these examples, there's one term that I think we really need to understand, and that is the term surrender. Now, it's not necessarily going to pop up in specific verses that we will discuss, but it is a concept that if we have a poor understanding of it, a lot of this is not going to make sense because it's going to lead us back to behavior modification, which, as we've discussed, we don't really want to get mixed up in. So... A lot of times in Christianity, we talk about surrender, just surrender it to God, just give it up to the Lord. And it sounds good and right. And we're like, yeah, I need to do that. But then you sit down and you're like, wow, that was really ambiguous. And I have no idea what it actually means to just surrender it. And if you ask a bunch of different people, you're going to get a bunch of different answers that don't really connect together very well. 
And so over the last few episodes, we've really looked at how our sinful behaviors or thoughts are ultimately a sign that we are trusting in something, something else other than Christ for happiness or comfort, or we're seeking things that give us a feeling of control or distraction or really whatever it is. We all have very different motivations for why we do the things that we do. But when we're talking about surrendering these things to to God or to surrender them to Christ, I want to be clear in what I am meaning by that, because I think when we better understand what surrender means, it's not just this emotional, yeah, I surrender to Jesus. If he wants to take it away, I will let him. And it's this, we treat it as this permissive thing. I think a lot of times where we say we surrender, but ultimately we just say, you know, almost a Jesus take the wheel, but except it's, I'm going to keep driving and Jesus, you got to rip the wheel out of my hand. And that's how we treat surrender is a willingness to let God wrestle something out of our lives. Instead, I want to propose surrender in this discussion as to surrender something to Christ means to trust that he is enough. It's to say, Lord, my sinful heart wants to trust in these things for salvation. I am believing that my greatest problems are my temporary circumstances or my emotions or the problems I'm seeing right now. And I so want to rely on something other than Jesus Christ. I want to replace Christ with these things. But God, despite what I feel, I want to trust that you are who you say you are. And I will trust in you despite what my heart tells me. So In that way, surrender is an intentional shift. It's an intentional focus for us to say, despite the noise from my sinful heart and desires, despite what I want to trust in, in my sinfulness, I am going to surrender everything to Jesus Christ's authority. And and when we do that, we give a full reliance on Jesus Christ alone. He is the one who sets the pace. He is the one who says what we do and don't need. And when we do that, that allows us to keep all of these things in their proper place. So if you are addicted to alcohol, something that, as I've discussed in the past, is not a sin, then when we surrender, not just drinking alcohol to Jesus, but the the reasons why we want to drink alcohol, then we can start seeing that alcohol itself is not a problem. Maybe it's not for us because it does cause us in temptation, but it puts it in its proper place, not as a savior, but as something that can be good, but maybe we don't need, or maybe we don't need as much as we think we do. And in that way, when we start surrendering things to Jesus like that, when we when we recognize idols in our lives, when we recognize our sinful desires and our sinful patterns, and we say, Jesus, you are Lord, you are master, you are the authority over all of these, and I'm gonna trust what you say despite all the rationalization I can come up with. That is when we're gonna start seeing victory, and that is how all of this is going to make sense because we aren't just waiting to feel like Jesus is enough, but we are trusting that he is enough because we have faith in everything else that where he has proven himself in our lives. And we trust that in this sin area, in this struggle, he will once again prove himself to be sufficient. Whether we feel it or not, whether we even believe it or not, we know in our minds, based on history, based on who he's proven himself to be, that he is sufficient for all. So having understood what I mean when I'm talking about surrender, let's look at just 
three examples of the Bible and mental health issues and where Jesus is our ultimate solution to this. Again, not in a cheesy Sunday school answer, but really and truly Jesus Christ alone being our solution. So easy one of anger. Now, however you want to define the anger that you personally struggle with. You could say you're grumpy or having a bad day. Maybe you've got a short fuse or a quick temper, or maybe you're just a very bitter person because of things that have happened in your life that have just made you feel constantly bitter towards a specific person or the world in general. All of it boils down to anger and and it is anger. Now, When we look at God's word and what God reveals about anger, we realize that anger isn't just a negative character trait. It's not something that just makes us unpleasant to be around or makes people have to walk around on eggshells or hurts our children or our spouse. But instead, God's word reveals that the heart of a person who is angry in whatever way, in traffic, blowing up at the kids, longstanding bitterness... That heart is indistinguishable from a heart that wants to murder somebody or that is willing to murder somebody. So even if you know you would never truly actually kill someone, when you are angry at your kids or your spouse, your boss, that jerk online, when you are angry with them, if someone were able to examine your heart and look at what's really going on in your heart, they would find no discernible difference between what is going on in your heart and what's going on in the heart of someone who's about to murder their child or their spouse or their coworker or that jerk in traffic. Now, obviously, again, some actions are better than others, but the heart, that root issue is exactly the same. And we see this in Matthew chapter 5, verse 21 and 22. You have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court, and whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court, and whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. So, Christian, if we can just be a little bit honest right now, please stop being such a butthead on the internet. Maybe I'm going to get in trouble because I called somebody a butthead, but I say it in joking love. But when, when we are talking to people, even on the internet, even someone who is totally faceless and who we are basically treating as someone who's not a real full and complete person, but just a username and maybe a profile picture who said something we don't like. When we call people names, when we get angry, when we get into fights on the internet, we need to keep in mind what Jesus Christ said in Matthew 5, 21 to 22. To call someone a fool in anger is to have the guilt enough to go to hell. It is the same heart that would murder that person to end their life. And we need to take that very seriously because God does. God's word reveals just how important it is that we not have a heart of anger. And again, it's not a negative character trait. To be angry like that, for Christians to behave how they do online, is completely incompatible with a heart that has been radically transformed by Jesus Christ and now has the Holy Spirit living in them. Look at 1 John 3.15. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. 
So again, anger is just not compatible with the Christian life or the desires that we should have. To be clear, being angry does not say that you are not saved, but instead that for you to behave that way is not to behave as a representative of the family of God. You are not acting like what a Christian should act like if they have truly been changed by their faith in Jesus Christ and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in their lives. Now, we might at this point be tempted to say, well, but I can't help it. I'm a, I'm a victim of my anger. It's not, I don't want to do it. And at times it can feel that way, right? Like we don't want to actually hurt our kids with our words, or I hope no one listening to this is guilty of this, but actually striking them in anger. We don't want to hurt our kids. We don't want to hurt our wife. We don't want to stomp around and break things and slam doors. We don't want to just get all bottled up and hurt people in our silence. We don't want to write things on the internet that makes us cringe later because we, we were so out of control with our anger. But again, it's all a decision. And we need to trust what God's word says, not only that we are guilty of what we do in our anger or why we're angry, but we also need to realize that anger is not our true problem. Now, we've talked about this passage a couple episodes ago, but we're going to get into it again. James chapter 4, verses 1 to 4. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? In other words, he's saying, where is all this coming from? He's not saying that the problem is just that they are fighting, but he wants to address why they're doing it in the first place. And then he says, is not the source of your pleasures that wage war in your members? you lust and do not have, so you commit murder. Now, I don't know if this was true murder or he's speaking as Christ did about anger being murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So this church had a lot of fighting going in on it. But James here points out what their real problem was. He didn't say, hey, stop being angry. Say nicer words. You know, look at your WWJD bracelet and, and be nicer to people. Instead, he says that their true problem isn't their anger, but the greed and entitlement and pride that was happened to lead to anger in this situation. But even if it didn't lead to anger, that would still be a problem that they would have. And that is what James would still point out in them. Their hearts were set apart from God. They were focused on worldly things, on worldly pleasures and desires. And because they weren't getting what they wanted, they were hurting each other. They were attacking each other. There was a lot of fighting going on. And ultimately, what it was revealing wasn't that, wow, these people are really angry, but instead, wow, these people are not trusting in God in this moment. They are not loving God more than they're loving the world. And because they had these worldly concerns of wealth or comfort or whatever it was, they were trusting in worldly saviors. So whatever they were fighting about was showing who and what they were trusting in for a solution to their problems. And so as us as Christians today, when we are interpreting and examining our hearts and realizing that this is speaking to us, what is our solution? Do we just need to behave better? No. Because our behavior isn't our issue. Our behavior is a symptom of a deeper issue. 
And so if someone is wanting to kill anger in their lives, it's not about behavior modification, but about surrendering those sinful desires to Christ. Because what was this church ultimately doing? They were involved in idolatry, plain and simple. They were worshiping worldly goods or status or whatever it was, and they were angry when they weren't getting their God or when their God was not serving them well or it was failing them. And so as Christians today, we need to recognize our own idolatry in that way and how what it is that we're trusting in, we are getting angry because it is somehow failing us or we are not getting it. Or we will get angry because we are being threatened of having it removed from us in the first place. And so in that way, first of all, we need to repent. We need to genuinely and truly go to God and say, you know, God, you know, the Holy Spirit's helped me identify this in my life. And I am seeing that it is a sin issue, that it is an idol in my life. And I repent of putting something above you. And with that, we need to practice the put off and put on technique where we don't just try to get more God while still holding on to these sinful desires. But instead, we need to set apart these sinful desires and replace them with a desire for Jesus Christ and the things of God. And with that, what we ultimately need to do is find our satisfaction in Jesus Christ. Because when we're angry, what we're showing is that we are dissatisfied with life. And if we are dissatisfied, then that means that we're trusting in something that cannot ultimately satisfy us. And in that way, we know as soon as we're angry that we are not finding satisfaction in Christ. Because if we were, what on earth would we have to be angry about? We have Jesus. What could possibly be wrong in our lives when we have Christ and are setting our sights fully on him and have surrendered everything to his authority? But anger shows us where we're not. And the solution to killing our anger isn't to kill the anger, but to kill the desires, to kill our worldliness, to kill our lives and our hearts that are set against God and are set in loving the world. To repent and change from those things by turning to Jesus Christ and then just seeing everything change because our focus has changed. Now, the next one to talk about is addictions. Now, this can be all kinds of things. It can be drugs, alcohol, pornography, even Fortnite. I kid you not, there is a whole psychological study on on Fortnite addiction or video game addiction in general, but Fortnite is the jam, especially, you know what I'm talking about if you have younger kids. But whatever it is, in, in the realm of addictions, there is a lot of variety. And while some are better than others, some are more destructive than others, really there is not a lot of difference. Just like anger, you look at someone's heart, there's not a lot of difference on what's going on there. It just manifests itself differently. Addictions are the same way. Someone is addicted or has an addictive personality, if you will, simply because of what is going on in their heart and how they deal with that. And you know, I, I realize there is science that we can point to to say that addicts have different brain chemistry. And especially because as they become more dependent on that addiction, it, it changes how their brain functions. But even with that, even with the biological aspect that I, I'm not going to ignore or say doesn't exist, 
it's still the exact same heart that enters into that addiction and that begins that process that leads to what we would say is an addiction. And it's the same heart that keeps them in that addiction. So there is something about whatever a person is addicted to that is replacing Jesus Christ in their lives. And what's ultimately happening here in addiction, what is it that we can look at as a root heart issue, not just saying, oh, someone needs to you know, stop doing heroin or stop looking at porn, but instead looking at why are they doing that? Well, ultimately, as people, we are designed to worship or depend on something. Now, ideally, in a, in a, in a perfect world, in other words, I guess a world without people, but... You know, the, the plan from even the Garden of Eden is that we would worship God and depend on him for everything in our being. But just like Adam and Eve, just like us today, it's when we move away from that dependence on God and depend on ourselves, our thoughts, our beliefs, our desires that we start getting into trouble. And that's really what addiction is, is it is a, a, a worship and a dependence on something to satisfy us. So let me, let me prove my work here. So think about how addictions begin. Ultimately, it starts with a desire to be saved from something. Maybe it's a bad breakup. Maybe it's loneliness. Perhaps there is physical or emotional pain, whether it's something that is uh, immediate and happening now, or maybe it's from just a lifetime or, or something terrible that happened in childhood. Maybe somebody's bored. But really, ultimately, someone has something unhappy in their life. And I don't I don't say that, you know, to to reduce it, but ultimately we can make an umbrella statement and say that addiction begins because someone has something unhappy in their life that they don't want to be there anymore, that they want to be able to overcome or ignore or or drink away or whatever it is. They want to escape from whatever problems they are seeing is, is one of their greatest issues in their life in that moment. And so they do a behavior one time. They explore alcohol or drugs or whatever it is. They start by just exploring it, just trying it out, just seeing if maybe it makes them feel a little better. And a lot of times it will. But over time, they will keep returning to that. That, that same negativity will come up or a new unhappiness will arise. And they will say, hey, this thing brought me satisfaction. This thing brought me happiness that one time. I'll, I'll try it again. We'll see what's up. And over time, that be leads to a dependence on that item. We start to rely on it to save us from what we perceive as our greatest problems. And so we become put under its control. And it, from there, becomes our master. We live to serve our desire. And everything that we do can, can, can go so extreme that everything is is motivated by a desire to get more of something. I mean, you think of um, you know drug addicts who will steal or sell their possessions, or in horrible situations even sell their children, all in order to get more of that thing that they feel that they need so badly. Why? Because they are terrified of existing without it. Because even though they're miserable, even though their lives are horrible. They still believe that their lives will be better with this drug in it and that everything else in their lives can burn to the ground as long as they can have that in their lives. And so what ultimately happens here? 
whatever someone's addicted to, alcohol, drugs, pornography, video games, working, exercise, fixing cars, sports, their satisfaction in life becomes determined by whether they have or lack the thing that they depend on. And that is worship. That is saying that this is ultimate in, our, in my life. That if I cannot have it, I will not be miserable. But if I have it, then I can be satisfied. Then I can feel whole and complete and happy. It saves me from my suffering. It saves me from my greatest problem. And if that is not idolatrous, if that is not proving worship, I don't know what else can. But what does God's word have to say about this? Romans 6.16 Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? So, addiction is not a cute little word. It's not just a psychological diagnosis. If we are looking at it biblically, addiction is slavery. We are enslaving ourselves to something who is not God. It is our master. It replaces Jesus Christ. We can only have one master. Now, again, if someone doesn't have Jesus Christ, this makes sense. If someone is not a Christian, then they've got to worship something. So, of course, they're going to worship whatever they're addicted to. That's just, that's just natural. It's sinful. It's horrible. But it's natural to them. But if we have Christ, we do have a choice. We have a choice that we never had before Christ. And that choice is either to serve our flesh and to seek to satisfy it in what we think we need or to walk in the spirit and to set our desires and our needs on what the Holy Spirit shows us we need. So we see this in two places. Uh, first is Romans 8, 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So, Christians, we belong to Christ. If we have the Spirit of Christ, if we have the Holy Spirit, then we belong to Christ. And therefore, we cannot be in the flesh. We have to be in the Spirit. That needs to be our choice. And it is always, always our choice. And this is further clarified on, on this distinction in Galatians 5, 16 to 17. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So again, we're seeing the solution here. Do you want to stop gratifying your desires in the flesh? Do you want to stop being addicted to a thing? Then it's not just about learning better behavior, but it's about your walk, your desires, where your heart is, where your identity is. If it's not in the spirit, you are going to keep falling into the flesh. And it goes on, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. So if we are giving into our desires, then we are actively and intentionally acting and living against the Holy Spirit. And it's only by walking in the spirit by loving the things of God, by setting our hearts and our minds on Christ and growing in spiritual maturity, that we are going to see any end to our addictions. And not just the addictions, but the heart at the root of the addictions. Because you can go to something like AA and things like that, and you can and learn good, solid behavior modification, 
but if that heart is still there, it's just going to pop up elsewhere. Again, as always, maybe it's more tolerable. Maybe you can live with this new way that your heart that is steeped in idolatry and in worship and dependence of, on something to help you escape from your situations, maybe that's more tolerable. But it's the same heart. You have not changed, only your actions have. And so if we want to be rescued from this master that we have set over our lives, if we want to no longer be enslaved to sin and our sinful desires, then our solution is ultimately to return to our true master, right? To walk in the spirit by pursuing Jesus Christ. And again, step one of this is really repentance, repenting of idolatry, of worshiping something, of of, of uh, setting our own rules and saying, God, this is my greatest problem. My unhappiness is my greatest problem. My sadness, my loneliness, that's my greatest problem. And in that way, we make ourselves God of our own lives because we are determining what our greatest problem is. And therefore we decide what our solution needs to be. But instead we can repent of that. And as we turn to Christ, we're going to gain a better understanding of this suffering or unhappiness that we experience and realize that maybe we can find freedom from it, but maybe that is just a part of our lives. And it is something that God is going to use to grow us and to point us to him and ultimately to bring him glory. But we can't do that if we do not surrender our fear of this unhappiness or this unpleasantness. And we also need to surrender what we believe we need to save us and put it under the authority of Jesus Christ and let him decide who we are, what our problems are, and therefore what we need. And the answer will always be our problem is sin and our solution is Jesus Christ. And especially with addiction, you know, some hope that you can find there is that satisfaction in Christ is going to outlast any temporary satisfaction in whatever it is that that we're addicted to that, you know, whatever it is can give us a good high, a good distraction, a good feeling in the moment, but it will always leave us wanting more. It will always leave us unhappy, unsatisfied, and we will never reach that peak of where we can say, ah, yes, everything is perfect now and forever. The only thing that can offer that is a life spent loving and pursuing Jesus Christ. And even with addiction, again, I understand there can be a physical component to a person's brain chemistry essentially being rewired because of what this addiction has done to them. And even in that physical recovery, Christ is going to be there with you. He is still the solution. Even as you are relying on good science and and the knowledge of experts, Christ is going to be there addressing that heart issue that led to the situation in the first place. And then the third one I'd like to discuss is depression. Now, maybe you got enough of that from the last episode, but it is still a good one because it is so rampant in our society. Now, a lot of times, a lot of people get very defensive and say, oh, so you're saying that if someone's depressed, they're just bad and evil. And no, having the diagnosis of depression doesn't make you sinful. One thing that we really need to realize is that depression isn't just one thing. You can't just hold depression in your hand. Depression is 
really a collection of small pieces that make up a bigger picture that we have just labeled as depression. So really think about it. Just a few of these pieces include a feeling of hopelessness, sorrow, self-doubt, self-condemnation, worry or anxiety, and even a desire to basically stop existing and experiencing a life with those feelings that you don't want. I mean, that's what suicide is, is it's an escape from suffering because nothing else seems like it can be good in our lives. And so when it comes to depression, one thing to realize is that the term is fairly new. You know, depression, even though in our society, it seems like people have always been depressed and always understood it, really our understanding, our, our modern psychological understanding of depression is fairly new. But that doesn't mean that the experience of depression, of that hopelessness and sorrow and anxiety, that is by no means anything new. Uh, even just throughout history, we've seen people try to kind of pin down a, a label on it. It's been called being melancholy, having the blues. Uh, Winston Churchill and Charles Spurgeon called it the black dog that kind of follows them around. So this feeling has always been there. And we even see it further back all the way in biblical history. So we even see it. I mean, the earliest example is Cain of Cain and Abel fame. So the kind of brief context here to, to remind you is that Cain's offering was rejected by God and, and Cain was just really down. He was really crestfallen about it. And so God pointed out the source of Cain's mental health issue. It says, then the, in uh, Genesis 4, 6 to 7, it says, Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. So what was Cain's problem? God wasn't saying, Hey, buck up, buckaroo. Have a better attitude. Pray about it. Believe in me more. God wasn't offering this, you know, surface level solution, but instead he was saying, Cain, your problem is your heart. You are living and thinking in a way that is against my design. And that is why you are down. But if you do well, and that's not behavior modification, God is saying, if you, if you set your mind on godly things, because keep in mind, this is very early biblical history that, you know, Christ wasn't around and things like that. But God is basically saying to him, if you set your mind on things above, then your countenance, your heart, your emotions, you're going to have hope. You're not going to worry. You're not going to be angry. You're not going to be down. And God also says, but if you don't do well, if you don't focus your mind on the proper things, if you don't have your heart in the right place, if you're trusting in the wrong thing, whether it's your own works or just wanting to live in rebellion, you know, whatever Cain's real issue was. God is saying that if you don't, then you're going to be in sin. So in that way, yes, Cain was sinning by being depressed, not because he was depressed, but his depression was a symptom of what was really going on in his heart. And that is what God is calling out. God called out not the behavior, but the heart behind it. Now we see again, David David was depressed. David was a super emotional guy. So maybe it shouldn't surprise us that the guy who can be capable of just singing all these praises can also be capable of being really low and just, you know, living in, in a darkness. 
but we see um, in Psalm 32, we don't know the full context of this, but odds are very good that he wrote this after his sin with Bathsheba, where he slept with her, sent Uriah off to die to try to cover up his sin, and he kept trying and trying and trying to ignore and rationalize and cover his sin instead of just recognizing what he was doing. And he writes in Psalm 32, 3 to 5, When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. Now, if you've ever been depressed, you know what David's going through. You know what that feels like. He says that his body is wasting away, his his all-day groaning. He says that God's hand was heavy upon him and that his vitality, his life energy in a way, was completely drained like he was just in this blazing hot summer and working and just completely exhausted all the time. I mean, if if that is not a biblical song of depression, then we will never see it because this is very clearly David saying, I was depressed. But then look at what he says after that. I acknowledged my sin to you, and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of all my sin. So this psalm is so beautiful because there is such a dynamic between what he experienced when he was hiding his sin, when he was trying to keep it down and suppress it and ignore it and rationalize it away. But when he finally acknowledged it, when he repented, when he turned, then he saw that change. He was no longer heavy. He was no longer drained. His bones weren't wasting away. But David teaches us that holding sin, hiding it, living in sin leads to depression. David lived in guilt and like us was willing to do anything except actually deal with why he was feeling so guilty. But then confessing it restored him. And again, because I know this always comes up and this is what people immediately snap to, David is not showing us, oh, just pray and you'll get better. No, it was the heart of David that led him into sin. It was the heart change of David that brought him out of that depression. And so here, God's word clearly shows us, whether we like it or not, that our sin can lead us to feelings of depression. It can lead us to feelings of anger. It can lead us to addiction. Again, the root can show itself in many different ways. But again, speaking from experience here, from so much experience, that depression is very likely a sign that there is something going on. And now a lot of people, I talk to them and initially they're like, well, I don't know. There's nothing wrong with me. Or or I'm not doing anything wrong. I'm not hiding anything. And that should immediately be a a problem to us. Because if we're saying that we have no sin, then that means that we've reached a level of perfection. The problem often comes in that the sin that we are having, whether it's not reading our Bibles, whether it's hiding other sin elsewhere, whatever it is, it doesn't feel related to our depression. And so we don't see the link and the correlation to our depression. But again... It's that root that just grows different kinds of fruit. And so today, I'll I'll, uh, link an article down in the show notes. But even today, I still get depressed. You know, despite all the stuff that I maybe talked about last episode, I still get depressed. 
But when I do, my immediate thought is not, oh no, I need to fix my depression. My, my, my response is, oh no, I'm in sin somewhere. Where is it? God, help me find it. Because I know that when I get depressed, it is a symptom of something deeper going on in my heart. It is a sign that I am trusting in something that is failing me or whatever it is. And I need to go through the power of the Holy Spirit and find that root and repent of it and turn to Jesus Christ in that area. So, you know, I said at the beginning of this depression section that depression's not a thing. It's just a bunch of pieces kind of super glued together and we call it depression. So how do we surrender to Jesus in this area? Well, again, one piece of depression is hopelessness. Well, what is it that we are hopeless about? Often it's that we've placed our hope in something, whether it's our job, our health, our looks, our relationship, our kids, maybe just the world in general, politics. I mean, there are so many things that we place our hope in, but ultimately always those things that we hope in fail us. And so whether because of one moment or because of a lifetime, the more that we place our trust in things and the more those things fail us, the less hope we have because everything that we feel that we can trust in fails us. Instead, we need to turn to the one who gives hope in this life and the next. We need to put our hope in the one and only person who cannot fail, and that is Jesus Christ. He will never fail us. We may not feel like he comes through how we want him to, but if we believe that he is true and perfect and all-powerful, then what he does we know is for the greatest good. Maybe not for us individually, but it is the greatest good for him. And if we are devoted to him, if he is our master, if we serve in the truest sense of the word, then our desire is not for our own happiness, but for the greater glory of God. And that is how we can stop being hopeless because we can find hope in the one who can't fail. Now, worry or anxiety is the exact same thing. Often we fear things because we feel out of control. We, we don't have a good grasp on things. Things are not going how we want them to, or we feel powerless because we don't know how things are going to turn out. Again, that is a sign that we need to stop trusting in our own strength and in our own need for control and maybe even to repent of our pride in that things can only be good if they go how I declare they need to go. And instead, we turn to the one who is sovereign of all and knowing that even if everything goes off the rails and everything catches fire and we lose it all, that we've lost it somehow. Even if we can't see it in this life, we've lost it for the glory of God. And anything better than that is purely a gift from him. Now, with depression, a big feeling is just feeling overwhelmed with life and situations. And we just, you just kind of want to roll over and say, I just can't, I don't have the power, I don't have the strength. Well, again, this is a sign often that we are relying on our own strength to get through circumstances. We are not relying and resting in Jesus Christ. We are up and about and constantly moving because if we don't do it, nothing's going to go right. And that's why we feel overwhelmed is because we are trying to be God instead of allowing God to be God in that situation. And then, you know, even if we get really real here and just talk about suicide or, or des a desire to commit suicide, well, why do we want to commit suicide? Because we feel like our circumstances are not going to change 
And often that's a sign that we are putting our trust and hope in our circumstances for us to be satisfied with life. I would be satisfied if I felt better, if the situation changed, if this hadn't happened. But because I can't change it or I feel like it will never never change, I don't want to exist anymore. And so instead of trusting in circumstances that may or may not change, we can place our trust in a perfect, loving, and unchanging God. A God who will and can never change. And we're so thankful because he is already perfect and we don't want him to change ever. And he will not. He will always be who he is. And therefore, we can always put 100% of our faith, trust, rest, and reliance on him, knowing that he's not going to drop us. So again, there are so many things that we could talk about with this. There's an unending list of problems But I hope we're starting to see that there really is only one solution to what we might label as our mental health issues. Now, I know, oh, just look to Jesus, just pray more, you know, just just love God more. That is such a cop-out solution, and it drives me up the wall. So if you've, if you've gotten through all this series and you are just so frustrated because you've heard Christians talk like this, but they're always just, just throwing out, you know, oh, thoughts and prayers and just pray about it more, and you're frustrated, I'm frustrated right along with you. Because let's be real, to just say, oh, just look to Jesus, that is lazy. And it's even dishonest because when someone says that, when they're saying, oh, just pray more, trust Jesus, hope for the best, they are being as effective as secular psychology because they are not trusting and believing the words they're saying. Really what they want to do is they are saying, man, this whole like talk about sadness and depression and anxiety, I'm really uncomfortable and I don't want to be uncomfortable. So I'm just going to band-aid it and just point them to Jesus so that I can skedaddle out of this conversation. That is not at all where I hope I have ever pointed anyone throughout the course of this seven part series, because even though I am saying Jesus is the solution, I am not trying to do it in any way that is lazy or disrespectful to our Lord or to what a person is going through. But even if I'm saying don't treat Jesus as some kind of magic word to fix problems, I am still going to say that Jesus is the answer. I'm just taking it in a different approach. Because Jesus just doesn't want us to just feel better. Because often that's the focus we have is my immediate problem is how I feel. And so the immediate solution I need is going to make me feel better. And that's not what Christ is about. He doesn't want us to just flee from our suffering. Sometimes we need to lean in to the sorrow, to the sadness, to the anxiety. Because it's going to drive us into his arms. Because we're going to realize that it is too much for us. That we don't have control. That we are small and powerless. But that we have a huge, powerful God who loves us personally. The Father sent his son to die for us. I mean, when when we talk about what really happened on the cross, that is the God who we have who loves us. As our Heavenly Father who calls us his children as Jesus Christ who died for us and keeps saving us from our sinful desires and as the Holy Spirit who basically makes it all possible. God loves us so much and his goal isn't just for us to be happy in this brief few decades that we're on this earth. He wants so much more for his children. 
And so when we're talking about Jesus as the solution, I want to be very clear that I am not saying to approach Christ with the goal of fixing our problems. Because when we go to Christ in our suffering, our greatest problem is not what we're feeling, but why we are feeling it. That is a heart issue. It's often a heart issue that we may not even understand. We might we might not know how to surrender it to Christ. We may not be able to point to something and say, Christ, I know that deep down this is what I'm trusting in. This is my sin issue. This is my pride. And so it's manifesting like this. You know, sometimes we can be very calculating and insightful, but a lot of times we are just so overwhelmed and we're saying, God, I feel this way and I don't know where it's coming from. So instead of approaching Christ as a solution to our problems and saying, Christ, here's what I need fixed. What do you got for me? Instead, don't even come to him as just a means to finding a solution to your problems, but instead focus on the important parts of your relationship with Jesus Christ. Heedless of what you are feeling, whether you're feeling good, whether you're feeling bad, we still need to focus on these important parts of our relationship with Christ because they are day-to-day, moment-to-moment, what should define who we are and what we desire. So first, we have faith. We have faith that Christ is who he says he is, that he has set us free from sin, that he has these uh, desires in our life for us to live certain ways and to accept certain things, reject others, things like that. We need to have faith that Christ is who he says he is. With that, we need to surrender. And remember, that means not just be willing for Christ to rip something out of our hands, but for us to genuinely lay everything at his feet and say, you are ultimate. And I don't want to trust in these things. Even though my heart is leading me away from you, I want to fix my eyes on you. I want you to be my authority and tell me who I am instead of me trying to define it myself. And from there, we just walk in obedience in our Bible reading and our prayer and how we serve others and being part of a body of believers in rejecting the things of the world and not being wrapped up in things of the world, not setting our minds on things below, but instead setting our mind on things above, trying to grow spiritually, pursuing the fruit of the spirit instead of the works of the flesh, as we see in Galatians 5. All that stuff is just part of our day-to-day existence as followers of Jesus Christ in this world. And here is what is amazing, is that when we don't focus on our problems as we go to Christ, but instead we just focus on our relationship with Christ, those problems are going to end up fading into the background because our hearts are focused on something else. Therefore, our behaviors and our attitudes are going to be different as well because that root has changed. And so it's going to grow different fruit. You know, see my discussions on the fruit of the spirit because it's not about us being better, but us becoming better because we have set our minds on Jesus Christ. And as a result, the Holy Spirit grows these good fruits in us. And so... At the end of the day, we realize that our problems stem from where our hearts and our minds are set. We've talked about that over the past several episodes about that's, you know, our root. Our root is our problem. What is really going on, our pride, our idolatry, our worship of other things, replacing God with something else in our lives, that is our core issue in our hearts. And so if we're pursuing happiness and pleasure, then we're going to find ourselves lost and broken when whatever it is that we've pursued doesn't give us lasting satisfaction. 
We're going to get angry when we don't have what we want or think we deserve or we feel like we're going to lose something that we have become dependent on. We're going to become addicted, addicted and enslaved to various things that promise to free us from what we think is our biggest problem. Or we will just live with an overwhelming darkness when we realize that nothing really does bring us satisfaction, that we everything really is hopeless because everything we trust in and believe in and hope in never delivers like we need it to. And so the solution here is not better thinking or self-affirmation or even medication. You know, those things have helped people. And I said that from the beginning. I know that a secular psychological solution has made people feel better. But again, when you're starting with a secular worldview, then feeling better is the greatest thing you can hope for. But as followers of Jesus Christ, feeling better is just a side benefit. The greatest thing that we want is Jesus Christ. So it's not about working harder to feel better, but instead resting more and enjoying the side benefit of feeling better, having more joy, having more peace, because our hearts and our minds are set on the only one who can bring hope, the only one who can bring peace. So focus on him and the rest will follow. It may be slow. It may not even fully follow because there's, we're never gonna reach perfection in this life. And those things, just like my depression, those things might still come up as symptoms of something deeper going on. So ultimately, at the end of the day, don't pursue what the world chases after for satisfaction because the world is miserable enough as it is. We don't need to follow them in that, but instead find your satisfaction in the perfect savior who sets us free from sin. And remember what Hebrews 11.6 tells us, without faith, it's impossible to please him for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. So seek Christ, trusting that he will be found, but don't seek Christ because you're just chasing anything that offers a solution to your sadness. Let Christ be the ultimate goal, not just a means of feeling better. Make Christ over all. Lord and Master, perfect Savior, focus on Him as the ultimate one. And as He changes our hearts, as He shifts our desires, then those fruits are not going to have anything nourishing them anymore. And over time, they will dry up. But when we focus on that, then we know that we are already on the wrong focus, the wrong desires, because we're focusing on our situations for satisfaction, for how we feel to define who and what we are. Now, as I was writing my notes for this show, and I was trying to think of a really good way to capstone this. And in my article, you know, I, I talked about most of what we talked about in this episode, but I didn't have a really solid capstone to it. And so as I was thinking, I, I realized that I actually heard the perfect piece of advice for how we can think about our mental health and how it is that we turn to Jesus Christ and making sure that we see him as the ultimate goal and not just a means to an end. And it came from a very unlikely place, actually. I was actually listening to a lecture on how to teach and preach from the Old Testament in a way that is true to the context. And I know, weird, but one of the conclusions that this uh, speaker made is that a lot of times 
we make a fallacy when we look at the Old Testament. And we have a go and do mentality instead of a come and see. In other words, we treat the Old Testament like kind of a morality lesson. You know, here's what we read, now go and do this in your life. And we just treat it as, as a way of finding guidance in our actions. And instead, what he suggested is that if you truly want people to be changed by what they read in the Old Testament, don't just find a list of things for them to do and, and to busy themselves with. But instead, invite them to just come and see God. And when we see who God is as he reveals himself in the Old Testament, that's going to impact us because simply of who he is, we're going to respond naturally because of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And again, it's weird, but I think that's the perfect advice for people who are struggling with mental health. Don't come to Christ to see what you can do to feel better. Don't come to Christ and try to find a list of actions that you can perform so that you can feel better. Because ultimately, what are we doing there? We are finding a works-based salvation. Maybe not salvation from the penalty of sin, but certainly salvation from the effects of sin in our lives. So instead of coming to Christ and saying, Christ, what do you have for me that I can do? What kind of spiritual medication can I take? What kind of spiritual exercises can I perform? Instead, come and just behold your Savior. The more you focus on who Jesus Christ is and who you are in him, the more your problems are going to diminish and fade away as the sinful roots that create them get swept away and replaced with an overwhelming overwhelming desire for the things of God. Now, if you would like to learn more about kind of what I've talked about through this whole series, because this isn't unique to me, this isn't some way out there thing. There's actually a term for everything I've been talking about, and that term is biblical counseling. Now, if you're from an older generation, you may have heard it as newthetic counseling, but we're going to go into the banner of biblical counseling. And to be very clear, I'm not talking about Christian counseling because Christian counseling is essentially ther secular therapy with a Christian rapper. But biblical counseling is really everything I've talked about. It is very pastoral. It is about finding root issues and then teaching us how to surrender those root issues to Christ. And it is just focused on seeing Christ for who he is and understanding our problems in light of that. I mean, really, everything I've talked about is what I have gained as I have studied biblical counseling and even had biblical counseling, uh, I don't want to say used on me like it's a medicine or anything, but uh, I, I've, I've benefited, I've been blessed from biblical counseling because all it really is at the end of the day, despite a fancy name and and all the uh, training and stuff available out there, biblical counseling is at its very core, what does God's word reveal about who we are and who God is? And how do we live with that understanding? How do we understand and interpret our problems and then find our solution in Jesus Christ? So if you would like to, um, you know, like I said, learn more about this, you can actually find uh, a counselor near you. Uh, so I'll have a link down in the description, but you just type in where you are and people who have been trained through certain biblical counseling programs will pop up and are available to talk to you because their greatest desire is 
basically my desire in this series, and that is to point you to Jesus Christ so that you can truly find rest from whatever has been weighing you down. Now, if you're a bit nerdier and you like books, boy, do I have some books for you. Uh, I had to behave here and not just list everything on my bookshelf, but a handful of books that I would recommend. Uh, Gospel Treason by Brad Bigney. Uh, This is just a great one that shows the idolatry in our hearts. Uh, Seeing with New Eyes by David Paulison was uh, a big transformative one in my life, uh, but it is basically... Like it says, how do we see our problems with new eyes, and especially biblical eyes? Um, a Theology of Biblical Counseling by Heath Lambert. This one's a little uh, drier, um, and it's much more about understanding what biblical counseling is. But I think that with this book and the next one, there are uh, benefits to it simply because by understanding what is involved in being a biblical counselor, you're going to be equipped to understand what it is that we need to be searching for just in our own lives and as we talk to others. Uh, But the next one, like that, is Competent to Counsel by Jay Adams. And I would say, honestly, for the most part, I can recommend almost anything that Jay Adams has written. Um, Just a a very good quality content in understanding a variety of mental health issues through a purely biblical lens. Uh, This next one... um, The Christian's Guide to Psychological Terms by Marshall and Mary Asher. Um, I really love this book, but what it does is it takes, it kind of what I did with depression. So it takes something like depression, anxiety, OCD, whatever it is, and it breaks it down into the individual component parts of it and says, biblically speaking, here's what someone is experiencing. How do we understand this through God's word? Um, And then a maybe shrunk down version of that is the Quick Scripture References for Biblical Counseling by John Cruis. And again, it's going to do something similar where it's going to take an issue that someone is experiencing, sadness, hopelessness, anger, and it's going to give some understandings of it and point people to God's word to better understand what that emotion or that feeling or that behavior is and why they are experiencing it. So I will have a list of all of those, as always, again, down in the show notes. But that is, uh, is basically going to do it for this series. Uh, seven parts on Christians and psychology. Um, I want to uh, thank everyone that has given me uh, good feedback on this. It's one that I was a bit nervous to tackle just because I know that, as I said early on, psychology... And, and the, the labels that, that secular psychology offers us is very much a part of a lot of people's identity. And so I know this subject can be very difficult. It was difficult for me to learn about as I was dealing with my own mental health issues. I've had uh, difficult conversations with other people as I've tried to um, just be whatever blessing and encouragement I can to them. But I think this is valuable and this is why I wanted to do this one. Um, I, I think that it is transformative, that it is one of those things where when someone really gets a grasp of this, they're going to see God use it to radically transform their lives. Because again, it's not this magical pill. At the end of the day, it's simply getting into God's word and seeing ourselves as God sees us, understanding the root of our solutions as he does and understanding or understanding the root of our problems as he does and then understanding our solution through Jesus Christ as he does. 
So this has been a hard series. It has been a dense one. There has been a lot to it. I fully understand that. But let this be something that isn't just maybe a one and done listen, but something that maybe you listen to a few times and brush up on. Uh, as always, each uh, episode has the article attached to it, so you could read it if you just want to get a, a more condensed version of that. But my my desire and my prayer with this ministry and with this series is that it has led you to a greater love of Jesus Christ, greater understanding of yourself, and that it will be a useful tool and resource as you keep moving onward in your faith toward maturity in Christ. Thank you for listening to this episode of Onward in the Faith. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast and visit onwardinthefaith.com where you can read hundreds of articles about every area of the Christian life. If this ministry is a blessing to you, there are three ways that you can support it. You can pray for Ray and Onward in the Faith itself. You can share this episode with others, or you can help with various expenses by visiting patreon.com slash onward in the faith or following the link in the show notes. We hope this episode has encouraged you to keep moving onward in your faith towards maturity in Christ.